Good day, everyone. This is Steve Chu. Uh, I am a proud member of the Legal Geeks, and it is my tremendous honor um, and pleasure to bring to you today a podcast with some dear friends of mine. Uh, today we have with us Joshua Gilliland, who is one half of the founding members of the Legal Geeks. Josh, how are you doing? Uh, fantastic. Sheltering in place. The weather is wonderful and it's good. We are, we are counting our blessings today and we're hoping to uh, bring some joy to everyone too. We also have with us uh, the terrific Carol Nahara. Carol, how are you? Doing great, Steve. I'm unfortunately back at work, but <laughs> I, I'm not going out a whole lot. So. I think we're, we're all, uh, we, we all find ourselves uh, today in, uh, in a very odd environment. Um, right. you know, I'll say it's, it's my honor to moderate today and to um, help Josh out because Josh is our fearless leader and coordinator. Um, but it's my great honor to help out today as moderator. Uh, to set the background, we are in an unprecedented time. We hear that very often. We have a global public health crisis. We have a lengthy quarantine, a pandemic, and there is a new normal. We're all sheltering in place. We're trying to go about our lives as best we can during this odd time. And one of the unfortunate things about this year has been the cancellation of so many events. We're talking about sporting events, movies, outdoor activities, uh, and within the what many will call the nerddom or fandom, many of the conventions have been canceled, none bigger than San Diego Comic-Con. We are officially now in what I typically call San Diego Comic-Con week. San Diego Comic-Con would start next week. It is the largest, often regarded as the Super Bowl or the largest, um, most wide-reaching um, of the comic conventions out there, annually attracting over 135,000 people to the convention center in downtown San Diego. The numbers themselves are difficult to calculate and Comic-Con itself says they don't track numbers quite the same way that other folks do because Comic-Con has evolved to the point, and this would be the 51st year uh, this year, it has evolved to the point where there is a campus feel. Comic-Con has expanded beyond just the convention center into the neighboring hotels, panels and events and parties are hosted in those neighboring hotels. And indeed, there are a number of offsite activities that occur in parks, playgrounds, museums, all around downtown San Diego. So downtown San Diego truly becomes a campus for Comic-Con. And you don't need a ticket to go to most of these outside activities, most of these offsite activities. So the true attendance for Comic-Con is probably far higher than the estimated 135,000. And this is for many people who have been longtime con attendees. This is an annual time where you get to celebrate the things that you love. You get to see things meet people, acquire things. But I think that I speak for most people and certainly for myself when I say that the greatest thing about Comic-Con is a camaraderie. The people you see year after year, the people that you meet every year, people that love the same thing. I have heard Comic-Con perhaps best described as being a place where you can be among your tribe, among other people who are like you you can call out an obscure reference to a movie 
and people, you know, chances are many people will answer you back. Um, so it's that camaraderie that even though we don't have an in-person Comic-Con this year, we can still have that camaraderie. We can still have that Comic-Con spirit. And that's why we're here today. Um, and I, I'm fortunate to be with Josh and Carol who have been going to Comic-Con for a number of years. We're gonna talk at length about Comic-Con in a little bit, but this is gonna be sort of a two-part podcast in the sense that one of the topics will be about the legal geeks and the legal geeks appearances at Comic-Con. And then we will also just take a step back and talk about Comic-Con from the perspective of fans and the things that we love and have seen over the years. So why don't we go ahead and get started then. Uh, Josh, why don't you tell us about the Legal Geeks? You know, the Legal Geeks started, I have in 2015 and has really grown over the years to be just this, um, you know, really terrific force. I'm sorry, 2012. I have, I think, for the legal, the legal Geeks. 2015 was the first year that the Legal Geeks was at Comic-Con. But over time, the Legal Geeks has really grown uh, and produced just tremendous content. So tell us about uh, the Legal Geeks. How, how did you come up with this idea? Uh, it's fun to talk about our origin story. So it started because I have the blog Bowtie Law, where I talk about e-discovery issues and Judge John Fasciola in Washington, D.C. wrote an e-discovery opinion where he made a high noon reference and that, you know, that he was laying down the law with these litigants that were being obnoxious. So when I wrote a blog post about that, I made lots of cowboy movie references because that was just a gift for, for writing purposes. Oh, that's Jessica Meterson retweeted that post. And then we started uh, messaging back and forth and there were lots of pop culture references. So from Blazing Saddles to Caddyshack, to Young Frankenstein. <laughs> so, you know, all the classics. So all the Gen X classics that, uh, you know, we watched from the seventies when we were kids in the eighties. And, and I thought like, well, it'd be fun to actually talk about this in the legal context. So I pitched the idea to her in June of 2012. We then spent a couple weeks getting ready to do the launch. So we figured out the name, the Legal Geeks sounded the best. So we went with that. Put together a couple posts, recorded a few podcast episodes in advance and launched on July 12th uh, of 2012. And from there, we were off to the races, uh, doing, you know, trying to do weekly content as best we could, and you know, talking about all the geek things that we love, whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, you know, like go down the list, all, all the things that gave us joy in being able to talk about it. Well, a funny thing about people who might have spent their younger years reading comics or watching Star Trek is a lot of those folks went to law school and started to becoming lawyers and judges and got into reading us. So like that was cool. 
uh, there were also law students who would read us as well and, and share it. Time moves forward and we start getting some traction. You know, we have a couple posts that io9 picks up. Jessica wrote a brilliant one uh, with court opinions that reference Star Trek episodes on Star Trek quotes. Wow. And I did one on all the contract issues in Firefly since it was offered consideration uh, gunfight. And, you know, they picked that one up or the assumption of risk of wearing a red shirt in Star Trek. <laughs> and yeah, you know, like the only thing that has a higher fatality rate than a red shirt in the original series is being a mom in a Disney movie. And uh, right behind that is uh, being commanding officer of the Battlestar Pegasus. So yeah, yeah it's, right. it's, cause I go through three out of four. So again, high <laughs> fatality rate, but red shirts, guy on left and right. So things move on and we start meeting people. So the Geeky Awards launch and their first year was 2013. And then interacting with all those wonderful people and they really did create a wonderful sense of community. We met uh, the good people at San Diego Comic Fest, Mike Towery and uh, you know his amazing wife, Wendy. Mike was one of the teenagers who started San Diego Comic Con. My first time presenting at a show was at Comic Fest in 2014, and it was on the legal issues in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which, as you can imagine, there were quite a number uh, in the first two seasons that were like weekly blogging for, for us to blog about or podcast about, because they were just all over the map with wonderful constitutional examples. Really, I, I cannot say enough nice things about Mike Towery. He's the elder statesman of geekdom, highlights the wonderful community that cons have, where people go, where it's like, well, there are others like me. Because being a geek can be a very introverted experience. You know, like if you're at home reading comic books, you're at home reading comic books. Or, you know, like if you were like me in the 80s watching Doctor Who on the PBS channel 54 at 10 o'clock on Friday nights. Again, introverted experience, pre-internet, you know, it's just, it was a very different world. So when you start seeing people, oh, you like this too. You want to have a sonic screwdriver or you have a lightsaber collection. It's like my people, you know, and it's a wonderful feeling to be able to be with others who like this as well, especially if your family is supportive, but they still look at you on. So, <laughs> you know, like that, that mix of like, you know, we support this because he's into it. Like, it's like, I like golf, he doesn't like that, but he likes the fact I'm into it. And like, we just, we have that agree, you know, social contract in the family. Like we have our things that we love. Well, because of that relationship, Mike offered to pitch us to Comic-Con because he said the organizers at Comic-Con were always looking for good content to be panelists. So for the, the first year was 2015, and we thought Star Wars would be a good topic because that was the year that The Force Awakens would be coming out. And so we started kicking around the ideas and I reached out to then U.S. Magistrate Judge Paul Graywall, who I learned was a nerd 
by a couple of his opinions. How did you and, meet him? Uh, well, he, well, again, he presided in San Jose. And so there was a bar association event where we had all the judges and he had literally just been appointed to the bench two hours before the, that presentation. And so he began his talk with like, well, in my vast experience on the bench, and I thought like, I like this guy. <laughs> I, I the cut of his gym. Well, he did a bunch of opinions in the uh, Apple Samsung case. And, and one of them, uh, he made a Star Trek reference and, you know, in all the motion practice that was taking place. And the quote was something along the lines in the opening paragraph of the opinion that uh, motions in this case are, are to Judge Coe and I what tribbles are to Captain Kirk. <laughs> and because they just they're like, yeah, so like the, and it was this Cute, epic, but unwelcome at some point. <laughs> I was just like, hey, I like him. So we, I opened a dialogue and we were doing an e-discovery event. And I mentioned that I was speaking at I was actually at Big Wow Comic Fest in San Jose. I was in line to see Jim Steranko to get his autograph. Uh, had just done an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. panel. And, and he made some comment about, uh, you know, besides getting appointed to the Supreme Court, you know, the, one of the career highs that he has was, was speaking at Comic-Con. <laughs> I, I can't help with the first one, at least not yet but I can help with the second one. <laughs> and, and uh, so like pitch the dates for the show and, and this pitch. And, you know, there was like a pause in emails and a few days later, a note came back. He's like, I'm in. It's like, okay. So, you know, worked with Mike to put together the pitch and we called that first panel Tatooine Law. And that was our first dive into it. And, you know, the three-person panel is, is, is one of my favorites to do because you can have the interaction and you can also, like, rock it through topics. You can go back and forth. And, we, like, we did that. And we were up on Thursday night at the show, and Mike was a little concerned, like, that could have been a graveyard to put us in. And it's like, I had no idea. And so it's 2015, and at that first show, like, I'm, I'm the kid in the candy store, you know, wide-eyed, because I'd been to some smaller cons. And so, like, that's not, it wasn't completely new, but Comic-Con is like, you know, drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> just with all of the activities that there are. And, like, that was the first year that uh, Congressman John Lewis was there presenting, and I, I couldn't like figure out the schedule, that sort of thing. So like, it was still very new. And I uh, like, I regret not, not seeing him, um, just as I regret not being able to see uh, George uh, Takai speak uh, at, at the last show, because uh, you know, he had that, that amazing book that they wrote about, they, they called us enemies, uh, about being interned uh, during World War II. And we, we had no idea the, the turnout. And I distinctly remember a fangirl telling me that it sounded like a stupid idea for us to go to Comic-Con. And, and I, I disagreed saying like, no, I think people are into this. I believe in this. 
And while we were waiting to go into the panel room, you know, there was this giant line forming. And then we realized it was for us. And so it was like, oh, God, that's cool. And like we filmed, filled the room, you know, 26 AB, and which seats, I think, around 300. And so yeah. it's a good size room. It's a good size Thursday night room. We, we've actually been in there a few times. It's, it's one of the, uh, I, I feel very at home in that one just because we've, we've been in there a few times. And it was, it was cool. And it was, so we rocked through the content. Not everyone could get in, and I felt bad about that. There were law firms that sent associates to Comic-Con to hear Graywall speak, <laughs> including two parties that were litigating before him. Oh, wow. The lawyers both attended, and like they both realized they, they ran into each other like, oh, hi, you're here too. <laughs> and because, again, I'm trying to get a sense of what's Judge Graywall like. And so we go through the content and it's a wonderful discussion of legal issues from Star Wars. And then the Q&A happens and that's equally fascinating because we could see people going through Iraq as they're discussing this. So lay people starting to pick up like how does the law work? And there was one kid probably say seven you know, older than five, under 10. So, you know, in that window, seven's a good guess. And he asked a question about manufacturer liability for killer droids that was framed in the context of say, you know, suing the tobacco industry. Yeah, like really, wow. yeah, super thoughtful. And Judge Graywall handled that and it was brilliant. Uh, I had, I really wish this one had been recorded, but I, I, there was this guy who talked about, uh, you know, one of the topics was uh, justified homicide. And so, because one of the last topics was Han's legal right to shoot first. And one of the questions about uh, Count Dooku and Revenge of the Sith was, was Anakin right to kill Count Dooku because he was too dangerous? And, and I was able to say with a straight face, well, you know, technically Anakin had disarmed Count Dooku and he was no longer a threat at that time. Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, the way that people cackled and laughed and it was just, uh, it was just perfect because I was able to, to do that. Um, so that, that first year is always very special because, you know, there's, there's always a sense of wonder but that, that ability to get in that first year. And for the first couple years, Mike helped us and then switched to just me doing it because we had enough of a track record. Because you know, the Comic-Con folks get swamped with you know, panel proposals. And they're, they really work hard to find good people to present. So the, the topics that you see you know, it's not all like cosplay 101 for five days straight. There, you know, again, George Takai talking about being interned during World War II. Congressman John Lewis talking about marching across the Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. And all of them being treated as 
living legends and heroes because those who read comics or go see any movie that's set in space or a fantasy world about good versus evil actually does care about justice and what's right versus wrong and they'll fill the room to hear people speak to those issues related to either pop culture or because they are a living hero and again so that's just some of that mystique and those those the early time and how we got involved with san diego comic-con so I, i'm just delighted that our listeners get a chance to hear this story because folks who are listening this is the peter parker origin story the matt murdoch the bruce wayne the cal al this is how the legal geek started and became you know what it is today um you know there, there are a number of things i want to uh develop a little bit further follow up on a little bit here um with you, Josh. And Carol, please jump in if you have anything as well. Oh, Steve, I'm fascinated by this. I didn't even know the history of the legal geeks. And this is yeah. just, and it's, it's amazing to know. And it's, it's really, it kind of leaves me speechless. So I, I'm just <laughs> listening here. It's amazing. You know, I, I, I think that, um, I, I don't know if it's been written down, but in my mind, one of the most wonderful things about the group, the legal geeks, has been to make the law both accessible to non-lawyers and also fun, mm -hmm. again, to lawyers and non-lawyers, um, because it should be and it can be. And, you know, the law touches so many things and is so important. It, it holds our society together, I think was a slide that you put at one of our recent um, convention appearances. Law is the force, you know, that binds together the galaxy, you know, that type of thing. And that's not far off at all from the truth. Um, so if I understand what you were saying, the Legal Geek started June 2012 as a website then? We launched the blog and the podcast simultaneously. And that was deliberate because I wanted to be more than a blog and I wanted to be more than a podcast. I mm -hmm. wanted to have books. And... Diversify it, right? Yeah, there was that because there's different audiences. And it's also fun to talk about legal issues as it is, I enjoy sitting down and writing about legal issues. So there's that mix of both are important. Whether you're listening on your drive to work or vacuuming at home and folding clothes, or you're just reading because you're you know, scrolling through Twitter or Facebook and you see an article that catches your eye. So that's why we did both and so, but you know, we officially launched July 12th. Uh, and so like that's our birthday. So we just had number eight. Uh, I didn't look up what the anniversary uh, gift is for that. But um, uh, for Je Jessica's birthday's at, at the end of June. So I sent her a Wonder Woman mug with Wonder Woman uh, through the years. And so the different appearances. And um, so she, she liked that. And uh, yeah, it's yeah, one, one of the things about Comic-Con is I normally start my Christmas shopping at Comic-Con. <laughs> uh, it's a trait I picked up from my grandmother of, you know, you see stuff throughout the course of the year and thus you get gifts for people. So that way you're not hemorrhaging in December. Right. And, uh, and like you see something, oh, 
uh, Megan would like that, uh, you know, egg attack Darth Vader. And, you know, you thus get that. And so, like, that's something I picked up from my maternal grandmother. And, uh, yeah, so I, I've done that now since the beginning of going to Comic-Con. <laughs> Now, when you started the Legal Geeks with Jessica, and it was, it looks like it was just the two of you at the beginning, yes. and has since grown, you know, did you envision uh, what we have today, or what did you envision at that time for the Legal Geeks? That raises interesting thoughts. So I had, I wanted a creative outlet. I wanted to be able to talk about the geek things that I like, because this stuff is important to me. You know, I want to be able to watch Magnum P.I. and talk about the renter's rights issues in it. <laughs> and, or again, Star Trek is so, so rich uh, in it. Or anything um, that, that, whether it's Star Wars or, you know, like I watched a little Space 1999 and trying to figure out, okay, what could we talk about there? Or uh, Jerry uh, Anderson's UFO. And so, like, it's fun to, like, watch TV shows and issue spot because there are wonderful ones uh, in it. Or let's just say Watchmen uh, that was on HBO. Fantastic series. And I did some special little mini episodes that are on our Patreon about that one. Uh, because, again, being able to see a good closing argument and then be able to analyze it. This is why this is good and explain it uh, as an example that people understand. But at the beginning, this was just the creative outlet. And I was like, I hope people like this. And then as you know, like getting involved with the geeky awards and seeing all those folks tweet about Comic-Con in uh, 2014. And, and I felt like oh, we could do that. That'd be fun. And I've always had kind of a, a, a big tent philosophy of bring others in because I, I want, I, you know, when I was in the seventh grade, we had a comic book club and that, that met on campus. <laughs> it's stuff like that of people like to be, get together and talk about the Dark Knight Returns. Uh, and Great comic. Yeah, exactly. So being able to discuss that and, you know, the issues presented in it. And like, and we were little kids in the seventh grade discussing that. That sort of thing's important. And people inherently want a sense of community. They want to be able to be with people who like similar things or if you like dissimilar things, like you at least understand it, like on, on what they like and why it's important to them. And then you respect that because I, I know what it's like to go like, oh, you like that nerd, you know, and. Biff Tannen or something, right? <laughs> yeah, like that sort of thing. And, and then you find out years later that there were others who were, you know, into it as well, but they were ashamed to admit it. Right. And it's like, oh, I, we could have dated. Well, that would have been awesome. Um, too bad you didn't say you liked Star Wars back then. That, that's, <laughs> that's super hurtful. Um, so yeah, maybe, it's stuff like that. Maybe but now we're in, a, we're in a golden age where people are comfortable saying like, no, I love this. The, the Gen X nerds are in charge right now. 
and life is really good. I mean, like, sure, there's stuff that, that needs to be addressed with gatekeeping and people being horrible, but that's not the majority. You go to Comic-Con, you don't see schmucks. You see people who are flying their geek flags and they're flying them loud and proud and they're having a rip-roaring good time. Like, and then that's the beauty of all cons and of San Diego Comic-Con in particular. Yeah, all, all those kids who were in comic book clubs, computer clubs, role-playing game clubs back in the day, we've all grown up and we all go to these conventions and these in some ways could be considered sort of the grown up versions of that same comic book club or computer club, uh, gaming club, things like that. Um, it's it, that that's really amazing. You know, the, the, the um, insight here. Now the, you'd said something earlier, you mentioned how you describe yourself as an introvert. And I think that many people who are comic fans or sci-fi fans would probably self-describe them, you know, describe themselves as introverts. And it occurs to me that these conventions, what they are, are gigantic gatherings of introverts, which almost seems a little oxymoronic. Uh, and yet it works so well, doesn't it? Well, it's not like introverts dislike people. It's, you might feel more comfortable in a small group having a discussion as opposed to going to a party. That's how I am, you know, rather go have coffee or a sandwich with, you know, some, you know, a couple friends and like, that's, that's good for me. Uh, I do love speaking to 500 people about, you know, trials and Star, Star Trek and, or legal issues in Star Wars because people get it. And you no, know, I do enjoy that, but I don't care for the party side of it. And so, like, that's not my thing. I'd much rather go uh, and, like, hang out and have dinner afterwards. And I think a lot of people fall into that category who attend these shows. And, I mean, there's also a ton of extroverts. But, you know, when you see, you know, the extroverted introvert who's, you know, either made a Power Girl costume or dressed as a Power Droid, and they're walking around out front of the show and having their picture taken, that showed you know, creativity. There's a hell of a lot of STEM that went into making those costumes, you know, to envision something. How can I make this work? How can I make a Mandalorian costume? And I want to be able to breathe. And I want to put in a mic too. It's like, that's radically complicated. And the fact people figure that stuff out by the hundreds, if not thousands, and then descend upon shows, you just marvel at how awesome they are. And it's their creative outlet. And that is so important because everyone needs a we. Everybody needs hope. Everyone needs a place where they feel they belong. And Comic-Con is one of those focal points in San Diego and local shows across the country can be that as well because it's a place for people to gather just as you know the comic book store that hosts events and activities it's a place for people to gather where people can discuss the classic Power Man and Iron Fist series to the heart's content that is important 
So that that's I think you've summed it up just um, brilliantly right there. And it reminds me of I'll make just one sort of geek reference here. Conan O'Brien has been going to Comic Con for a number of years and putting on shows there, and they've become a big deal uh, for people to try to get Conan tickets. And he also offers Conan um, Funko Pops, which are very popular collectibles uh, for attendees that go. Uh, I, I've been lucky enough to meet Conan. Uh, I'll sort of step outside the moderator role and kind of put on my fandom hat for just a quick moment here. And he was just so friendly, so down to earth, just everything you would want from a celebrity interaction. I've heard him say that as his kids are growing up and trying to figure their place in, in the world, his advice to them has been, regardless of what you do, no matter where you end up, you need to find your tribe, your people people that love the same thing you do, because when you are with those people, talking with them, spending time, relating, working with them, that is when you will have a creative outlet, when you will be at your best, part of the team um, with similar goals, wanting to achieve similar things, regardless of where you may end up, what profession, what work, what place, uh, it's important to find your, your folks. And I think that Comic-Con is that for many people. Uh, now, sort of putting the moderator hat back on um, here, Comic-Con 2015 was the Legal Geeks first panel. Let me just rattle off a few stats here. So the Legal Geeks has been presenting at Comic-Con at 2015. This would be the sixth year uh, it is the sixth year, although Comic-Con is online this year. In that time, there have been 11 panels by the Legal Geeks, two mock trials of those 11, two of those 11 panels have been mock trials, and there is a 12th panel uh, this year. So a total of 12 panels have been put on by the Legal Geeks at San Diego Comic-Con over the years commencing in 2015. So Josh, when you had your first panel, at Comic-Con in 2015, did you feel like you had arrived, that this was sort of an achievement for you and for the group? Oh, I felt highly vindicated on many levels because, you know, hearing people go like, oh, no one will go. No one likes that. And my feeling are like, you're wrong. People care about the law. We live in a civil society and it's a civil society because we have laws. You, we have stop signs, we have speed limits. If you're married and you, you know, this, something bad happens with your spouse and you don't want to be married anymore, you can divorce that person. You know, there's no limit on who can own property. And so like, that's the perk of living in a civil society with due process and equal protection under the law for everyone and people actually give a damn about that. And that brought me great joy in seeing people turn up to talk about the law. Because year two, we did a, a Star Trek panel and it was for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Well, that included one of the justices from the California Supreme Court. Now that came about because Judge Graywall right after Comic-Con 2015, went to uh, the Ninth Circuit Conference. And he, I, 
I wasn't there, but it sounded like he had rock star status because he had been to Comic-Con. <laughs> and he knew, uh, knows Justice Quaylar because he's married to Judge Lucy Coe. And Coe and Graywall served together. And when she was a magistrate, they both handled the uh, Apple Samsung case and other discovery cases. And now she's a district court. And both Coe and Quaylar were on Obama's shortlist for the U.S. Supreme Court. So there's a lot of gravitas in that family. Well, Quaylar went up to uh, Graywall and asked about presenting at Comic-Con and what was it like and, and all that good stuff. <laughs> and and uh, so afterwards, you know, like uh, Graywall and I were, were exchanging emails. He's like, hey, what do you think about next year? Like if one of the justices from the California Supreme Court wanted to, to be there, it's like, yes. <laughs> we're, 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 like, we're going to say no to that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and that was so neat because we, we put together the, the pitch and everything. And you know, during the planning conference, you know, like stages, like interacting with, a, you know, state Supreme Court justice is, you know, you're highly differential. You're doing... You know, like you end every, you know, sentence with thank you, your honor. Because again, there's that training that we have as attorneys, like we kick into that. And, you know, getting a call from, you know, the California Supreme Court and asking, it's like, hi, you know, can you hold for, you know, Justice Quaylar? It's like, yes. <laughs> and uh, not a problem, glad to. And he was so warm and neat to talk to. And, you know, talked about, you know, at the panel, being a little boy growing up in Mexico, just like across the US border, he went to school in the United States. Like he would walk to school and that apparently still has happened until recently. And he uh, would watch Star Trek on his grandmother's little black and white TV set. Wow. That's just phenomenal. And, and like, look what he did, you know, family immigrates to the United States and he has a magnificent legal career, you know, professor at Stanford, and gets elevated to the California Supreme Court. It was on the short list for Obama's, you know, uh, US Supreme Court picks. You know, Josh, I want to interrupt you here. That was the first panel I ever saw with Legal Geeks, and it blew me away. <laughs> I, they, I didn't, I'd never seen a panel like that where they just took things that I knew about and they made, they made legal concepts that we had been discussing in law school, very theoretically, and it made it very accessible to everyone. And it made me really realize for the first time just how much the legal system permeates, pretty much and legal issues permeate, permeate everything from fantasy to fiction to sci-fi. And it, it just, it, it was the most amazing, and, and for me, uh, kind of gave me, I had an epiphany in that one. And, and it was just, it was really amazing. I think it, it has affected a lot of lawyers who've, who've gone to see that. I think that, and people who've thought about going to law school after watching that. So I think it's been life altering, those kind of panels for a lot of people, especially young people who are thinking about the law and then go to something like that and realize the law is not a dry dead thing that's a hundred years old. The law is something that's very active and alive and living today. Now, Carol, were you in the audience for that panel? I was. A friend of mine, who's a mutual friend of ours, uh, um, Megan, 
<laughs> was uh, had told me about it. And she was like, oh, if you're going to be at Comic-Con, you should go and see my friend Josh. And so I went. And I just went because I just thought, well, this should be kind of, I was a newly minted judge at the time. And I thought, well, you know, this might be kind of cute. And, and it was amazing. It was, it was intellectual yet entertaining. Um, not dry at all, very funny. And I just thought these people are, I want to know all these people. They're so witty and smart. <laughs> They're just people I want to know. So you, so you, you started as a fan and uh, became a, a respected member. Look at that. Hey, I was very, very lucky. Very, very fortunate that, uh, that not many people can do something like that where they see something that they so admire and so want to be a part of and then in a few years can actually be actively involved in it. So you, you, you were happy then with the, uh, the second appearance of the Legal Geeks at Comic-Con, Josh? Oh, yeah, because the second year they gave us two panels and the uh, Star Trek panel well, it made me feel like we were part of the 50th anniversary celebration. The Star Trek was very important to me growing up. And they put us in a larger room for that one, that seat around, I think, 700. And it was full. Again, line out the door. Not everyone could get in. And I think about a third of the attendees were attorneys. Wow. So there was, yeah, yeah there's yeah, that. So. Yeah, that factor as well. And that focused on like specific episodes that had trials. And legal and, issues, I remember. Or legal concepts. And, then, right. and that was neat. Uh, you know, and so again, like we did take apart the classic episode, Court Martial. And we also got into uh, how progressive Star Trek has been on depicting women and uh, people of color in the practice of law. Because in that episode, Court Martial, the, the first chair, I mean, the, the prosecutor was a woman. Yes. And that was at a time when less than 2% of attorneys in the country were women when right. that episode was made. So that was earth shattering. And then you look at the court martial panel of the four captains that were on it and, and then the Commodore, only one was a white guy. Yeah. And so you, you, the Commodore was African-American. Right. There was uh, somebody of Indian descent uh, who mm -hmm. was a captain and that was decades before uh, anyone of Indian descent got appointed to the bench in the United States. So, like, that entire episode looks normal by today's standards, but by 1967 standards, that was earth-shattering. That was science fiction to be that progressive. So it was neat to be able to get into that and analyze it um, and, and put together a, a chart that showed the different trial episodes with the different women depicted in each one uh, over, over the decades, uh, you know, culminating with the uh, episode uh, Rules of Engagement in Deep Space Nine, which had a, a Vulcan admiral who was a woman, uh, you know, as the you know, presiding over it. And again, and that was, you know, in the mid-90s with the number of women attorneys and women judges in the mid-90s. So again, need to be able to relate that to society and the actual practice of law. Uh, so yeah, that second year was a lot of fun. And then in the evening we had a, a panel on Supergirl because that was the first season of Supergirl. And we called it, you know, Kryptonian law. And my brother at the time was cosplaying as the golden age Jimmy Olsen. So we had him moderate it in character as Jimmy Olsen. And that was fun because, you know, we, we talked about 
you know, the constitutionality of the Phantom Zone. And uh, there was a lot of uh, Superman and Supergirl issues that we dove into from comics and movies over the decades. And um, again, just one of those wonderful topics. You know, the, the sheer amount of source material out there for iconic characters like Supergirl, Jimmy Olsen, um, and then especially for Star Trek, I mean, it's staggering. You know, Star Trek has often been ahead of its time, as you've pointed out, um, very, very much setting examples, talking about how things could be, how things should be, sort of the perfect world or as perfect as we can get. No poverty, disease, hunger, you know, a lot of equality. Yeah. Everyone has a chance. Um, just a, a real sort of utopian you know, society. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had that vision, which many people love. Um, the legal geeks have been at Comic-Con you know, as I said, this is the sixth year um, and the group's 12th panel. Uh, we'd love to cover every panel, uh, but that would be, you know, that would, we could go on for quite a long time, I think. So instead of that, we're going to try to take a more generalized approach today. And I want to bring in Carol a little bit more here as well. Um, we've decided to focus in particular on two panels to sort of talk about the Legal Geeks experience at San Diego Comic-Con, uh, where we can talk about sort of the intersection of presenting the law, um, opportunities that have been created by Josh and Jessica and the group where fans, lifelong fans, can now present on subjects they love and sort of be a part of that fandom and contribute back, you know, give back. So what we have here is fast forwarding a couple of years, we get to 2017 and what seems to have been perhaps, um, you know, th there's been a precedent set for this, but you have a panel now, Josh, called Judges on Star Wars. And on that panel, we had none other than our very own Carol Nahara today. Um, so I want to ask both of you and, you know, either of you can take this, but um, tell us a little bit at least about, you know, that panel, what went into sort of planning that, coming up with the ideas, and then also just being a participant and a presenter on that panel. Josh, you moderated it, and Carol, you were, um, you were a panelist. Um, what was that like, you know, what went into that? Well, uh, 2017 was the 40th anniversary of Star Wars, so we wanted to do something special. So we thought a judicial panel that had a variety of judges, so it had Justice Quaylar from the California Supreme Court, Circuit Judge John Owens from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge Stacey uh, Beckerman, Carol, uh, uh, Paul Graywall, then off the bench, and then at Facebook as their VP of uh, uh, litigation. And Jessica and I co-moderated it. So that way we each took turns moderating and alternating. So there were different judges that we each worked with and we st structured it so we, we did get to work with everyone. So everyone did have at least uh, two topics to talk about and uh, which was important because we wanted to you know have a little time with everybody. What uh, was the, the mindset there? And it was interesting seeing like the topics that we came up with 
compared with the topics that could have been that were suggested. Like Justice Quaylor had some ideas about comparing the the government of the old republic, you know, to Washington D.C. and like how that functions, and that was actually interesting. To again, it was like a political science course like with him going into it, and like that was just brilliant. You know, going like let's let's do this, and or. Uh, Beckerman and Graywall going back and forth on the ownership history of Anakin's original lightsaber, you know, lost on Mustafar, and like, and going down the list of, you know, is Ray technically the owner of it now? That was neat. And so there was a lot of, of that, of breaking down legal issues. And again, it was one of those uh, great experiences because we were on the Star Wars day of the show, which is Friday. And we were in room 7AB with all the other Star Wars topics. And that was fun to be with the others who were Star Wars fans. And like that, that day included like Hasbro showing how Black Series toys are designed and, and rolling things out. And, uh, you know, the way that they would like go through the audience and like give kids, you know, those uh, VX lightsabers. It's like, yeah, this is what it's about. Um, and this is how the sausage is made for toys and for the law, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so they, they had a lot of wonderful panels in uh, 2017 on Star Wars, and it was nice to have uh, like our part in contributing uh, to that celebration. You know, as a participant of that panel, I thought it, what I really what really struck me about it was the issues that Josh and Jessica first suggested to us when we when we took those issues and we ran with them, we expounded on them, but they were issues as judges that we see every day. For instance, the, the issue as judge, harkening back to what Josh has said about who owned the lightsaber. There, there are cases, real life, real world cases involving works of art go, going back to World War II and who owns them. And these are things that Judges are deciding, they're dynamic things that judges are deciding every day. I dealt with a bunch of search and seizure issues, interrogation issues, um, search and seizure of the mind versus, you know, uh, can you search and go into a person's mind as you see done? And, and although we're talking about science fiction, these are issues that we talk about in real life in court every day. I mean, at least once a week, I'm hit with a some kind of a motion to suppress something and based on some theory that someone has as to what the facts were, what happened, but they, they fit in many ways in a lot of the, into the, a lot of the scenarios that we see in Star Wars, Star Trek, and in a lot of science fiction and in a lot of fantasy. And that, to me, it was so much fun to be able to do that and then to really realize how close it was sometimes to real life. Yeah, so science fiction at its best, I think a lot of people um, have described it as, it's a mirror. You know, it, it shows us sort of the, the best and the worst of society in a way that you can't do if you're talking, if you're taking like a documentary or a historical approach. If you set it in a science fiction place, though, people can tell amazing stories and amazing allegories and morality tales. Mm -hmm. Star Trek, again, going back to Star Trek, Star Trek's been doing that since the 60s, you know. Um, Josh and Carol, what do you remember about that crowd? What, was it a full room? Oh, yeah, it was. I had two friends that couldn't get in, and I know a lot of other people who who couldn't get in. It was, it was packed <laughs> to the rafters actually. So I'm gonna raise my hand. Early and couldn't, you know, my barely got in. 
Yeah, my yeah. wife and I tried to get in that day and we were shut out. And I remember thinking, this is amazing. Look at, look at the, the support and the passion for um, you know, the panel, the topics and the law. This is great, you know? You know, one thing we didn't, we, and so one thing we never get enough time for is questions and answers. But when people ask questions, they're so engaged and people will come up and say that they've come and listened to the panels every time that they, we are presenting at any kind of a, a con. And they're just the audience of people that are really in, interested in this. They're not necessarily lawyers. They're just lay people. Some are lawyers, but they're not all lawyers and judges. A lot of them are just normal, everyday people who are fascinated by the law. And they're so engaged in these panels that we do. And they come in and they ask thoughtful questions. And they, you know, I just, I always feel bad that we can't get everybody's questions because they're so, it's clear these people have put a lot, as much thought into their questions as we put into making the presentation. So Josh, were, were, you, were, were you pleased with the panel? Oh, Did absolutely. It, it was a lot of fun. I, I wish there'd been more time. Uh, you know, like that one, Owen's got shortchanged on one of his topics. And you know, that was the hazard of, of a large panel. And mm -hmm. So like I that that bothered me, but he was kind of the a star on a Westworld panel the next day. So I, I kind of got over feeling bad because <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like there was a thousand people the next day to go see him talk about that. So it, it balanced out. But like that was very well attended. The the discussion was rich. Mm -hmm. uh, Beckerman brought down the house with her topic on how to defend defend Poe for, or excuse me, uh, uh, how to defend Finn for defecting to the resistance. And I thought she would have done a very like structured argument and she had mentioned something about perhaps doing it like a mock closing argument. And in like my mind, so I was like, you go girl, like, you know, whatever you want, you figure out, I'm not, you know, you just have 90 seconds like that. That's the, that's the rule here because the, the amount of topics that you have, that we have, like here's, here's the time constraint. She did a rap mm -hmm. to uh, Hamilton. Hamilton, it was to Hamilton, yeah. And on how to defend Finn. And it was exceptional. I'm like, people, it was just awe-inspiring. It's like, okay, that's one creative lawyer uh, you know, and, and rightly became a judge. Uh, one of my buddies who I went to law school with, who saw the panel said, uh, I would like to see more federal judges rap. And, <laughs> uh, like that was, it was just exceptional. And then, uh, judge Debin actually was able to like record it because I, I was not expecting that. And that was one yeah. of the last times I didn't record a panel. Um, and that might've been, um, because like they, you know, like you do have to check a box. There's a little like some admin type things to do. And since then, uh, I've been damn sure to make sure we record every one that we've done since then. So it's not lost to history. And, uh, but that was a lot of fun. Uh, so very happy with it. We really didn't have time for any questions on that year. Right. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, I, I, it was either that year or the following year, uh, I recall Carol introducing someone who was in the panel and you know, he was another judge from LA he was like going to be the presiding judge. So it's like stuff like that. It's like, Oh, hi. Um, good. You're into this too. <laughs> so it's, uh, 
uh, you know, just highlights this brings people together. You know, whether it's Star Wars or again, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, like you pick some, you know, topic that was a pop culture TV show or movie and there'll be a fan base for it, people who love it dearly. And like they're passionate and they care and they, they want to, you know, see people talk about this stuff. So hearing both of you talk about this, because um, I was not a firsthand uh, witness, because again, I, I couldn't get into the room. I was in line outside, but uh, it is interesting and it strikes me that this appears to be a moment where the Legal Geeks is at its best. The group is making the law both fun and accessible to people. It's interesting people who are maybe you know non-lawyers, but it's getting them interested in the law. Uh, and then we have the additional um, element of uh, a musical performance that was very unexpected. So the bar is getting set higher, it seems. So 2018, turning ahead to the next year, we have now a sort of um, a different type of presentation. Not the first time that the Legal Geeks has done a mock trial, because there was a mock trial that same year in 2017 on Luke Cage and the Marvel um, Netflix series. However, I want to talk about this one in 2018. Uh, a little bit of background for this. 2018, The Last Jedi, the sequel to The Force Awakens, had come out during the December holidays of 2017. The movie itself, you know, without going into too much of the substance, it's fair to say that there was some controversy. And one of the issues that jumped in, I think, at many people was the actions of our heroic pilot, Poe Dameron, who repeatedly disobeyed orders in the movie. Uh, and that's not something that's unusual because we've seen people, you know, we, we see people in Star Wars all the time. Han Solo is a good example. Someone who doesn't follow orders because they just do what they think is right. Poe Dameron seemed to be in that sort of tradition, but he really kind of takes it a step further and goes on to mutiny. So 2018 then, in, um, at Comic-Con, the Legal Geeks presents a mock court-martial where the group puts Poe Dameron on trial, court-martials him for the actions of The Last Jedi. So we are seeing something that is very topical, very recent. It's something that people are talking about. A lot of people are thinking about it because, you know, chances are that the vast majority of the people at San Diego Comic-Con saw The Last Jedi. And all of those people have some opinion on this issue. You, there really is no in-between. It's Poe's a villain or he's a hero. Everyone had an opinion. Um, so, Josh, what went into this panel here? Well, part of it relates to WonderCon. So we, we had our... Uh, WonderCon mock trial with R2-D2 and C-3PO suing the cantina for discrimination. <laughs> and it was at the... Uh, were you at that panel, Carol? Or were you? Yes, I was at that one. That one was great. So, so let, let's talk about that a little bit then. That, this is great. But yeah, go on, Josh, please. So we're, we discussed that, you know, like, okay, what do we do for, for Comic-Con? And so this is March, and we know that panel submissions will open up soon after WonderCon. So, you know, like we were kicking around different ideas. And so one idea that, that I had was stormtroopers suing for defective body armor. 
And it was, I believe, Judge Debin who suggested doing a court martial for Poe. And I floated that idea at our you know, dinner that we had afterwards to Judge Beckerman, Carol, uh, you and Thomas Harper. And we thought like, okay, that one, that one would, would work. And, and to highlight, you know, the fact that I initially wanted to do something else, I said, like, okay, let's, let's do this one because topical, it should fit. Uh, working with, um, you know, our friends who are in the Rebel Legion, uh, including Gary uh, Bean and, uh, and others that we've befriended who, who had helped out, uh, we found a, our Poe cosplayer and we found our general Organa course, uh, uh, cosplayer and started, we did the pitch and I was confident it would get uh, picked up. And in doing a mock trial, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So I didn't want to get caught with not having enough time to get everything ready. So in the waiting period to find out if we were selected or not, I started putting material together like witness statements and other material so we would uh, have something to work with if it was picked up. And I figured if it wasn't picked up for that show, we'd, we'd use it again at some, some other show. So it was definitely something to, to try, so it wouldn't be wasted effort. And I remember going around back and forth with, with some of the, the witness statements. And uh, you know, Christine and you both like took a pass at it. And then I fired back. So how is that supported in canon? And, and I was like, I just would have been helpful. I was like, I would know. So like I then went through Wikipedia, uh, Christine, and I think you both had the book, The Last Jedi. And so like we went to town on making sure that both uh, Poe and Leia's witness statements were as accurate as they could be to the characters. And that was super important uh, to me that we're accurate. And so like, we're not winging it. We're, everything it would be character consistent. And then when we did the practices, uh, cause like we, you know, we go through all the steps for preparing for a direct and a cross. And so the respective trial teams were like doing their thing. And then I volunteered to cross both witnesses. So that way, uh, like both, both witnesses would like have an idea of what a cross could be like. And I purposely did it as hostile. Like the, you know, the, the fire breathing attorney approach, not yelling, but definitely mean and trying to put the witness in a collar and like walk them around the courtroom. And- Carol helped with some of those practice sessions as I recall too. And-, and yeah, I remember that. It was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, along with Judge Shrino. And uh, with, um, you know, with our wonderful uh, friend who, who played Leia, her reaction, the look on her face, like when I opened up on her, was terror. And uh, she went to town, like studying up <laughs> and uh, like, and getting ready because uh, like she didn't know what to expect from the other side and because uh, there there were a couple theories and I, I had a you know defense theory that I thought could work and I kind of pushed that as an example 
of like you get Leia dirty to show that Poe should have never been in an X-wing. Like all, everything that happened was because he was put back into rotation after going through something traumatic, after being a POW, after being tortured, and it was her fault for putting him into that situation, and he should never have been there to begin with. And so, like that was my theory. The defense team did not go with that theory, but uh, but like that's the way I would have approached the case. And so, like that's the way I I tried doing the cross of 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 our layup, and I just I mean the look on her face. Uh, uh, she she was really prepared for <laughs> for the actual event. Uh, then when we actually do it, the prep was amazing because uh, I don't remember who had the idea to do costumes. And I said, like, okay, let, let's go for it. Let's lean in and let's have some fun. And because normally I wouldn't do that, but I thought like, oh, the spirit of this, like, you know, like everyone does it. Okay, that's cool. Let's, let's give this a shot. And Christine Peake's mother was a, was an art teacher and their like family tradition was always making elaborate Halloween costumes like they were into that so the fact that one of the lawyers moms makes everybody costumes like we're all in the fourth grade together that was hysterical uh, love again right <laughs> yeah it's just I mean the, we Christine and I went over to her mom's house where she had the you know like the high-end sewing machine that's like uh, you know printing out the 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 resistance patches. We then are you know going through different steps to distress them either with coffee grounds or soaking in tea and and like you know again it's like full on arts and crafts you know on a Saturday like with toothbrushes you know like scrubbing patches and like to make to make each look distinctive. And then like each going on to different jackets that she was sewing on to. And uh, like, you know, figuring out where we could get boots and like we all ordered boots from the same place. And uh, uh, I, there was a prop maker in Petaluma, California where I got the resistance insignia uh, for ranks and we figured out what would everyone's rank be. And uh, I got one for Judge Devin. I got him a general one if I remember correctly. And it was just so much fun putting that together. And the audience was hot. I mean, they were into it. Uh, your, your friend who, you know, I, now I consider a really dear friend, dear friend uh, Steve Tolafield, you know, was, was started the Poe Dameron Innocence Project. And <laughs> it's just awesome. Uh, it was just so cool that he did that. And, you know, like the, the, the quotes, like uh, Thomas doing the direct of Leia was like something to the effect of, if you give an order, you expect it to be followed. Yes. So if you said, uh, you know, get into the, the trash chute fly boy, you would expect, expect someone to carry that out. Yes, I would. It's like, just leaned in to everything good and pure about Star Wars and did it in the best tradition of trial advocacy possible and everyone just knocked it out of the park with their own styles uh, like the way you brought in the uh, General Krell arc uh, as part of the reason not to follow orders and from Clone Wars was 
was a great argument. And I saw, I remember people like ooing and aahing with that. So like there was a lot at play. Uh, and the fact that like pa Pablo Hill, Hill I always mispronounce yeah. yeah. The fact that he tweeted at us and then Ryan Johnson acknowledged our existence, which was pretty cool. And the fact that Oscar Isaac actually said nice things about us in an interview was also pretty reaffirming. And that person in contact with some nice folks uh, from Lucasfilm will actually interact with us on Twitter. So God bless them. That was a lot of fun. So I wanted to hit two things that you covered, you touched on there. One is that this was a mock trial, not a legal commentary on existing issues. This was actually sort of new material that we were, that um, the group was creating. Some could call it fan fiction. Others would call it, you know, this is just a trial of what might happen, sort of um, an Elseworld story or a what if in the Marvel tradition. Um, people who don't do trials rarely realize how much work goes into prepping for a trial. So, you know, what would you say, and, you know, Carol, your thoughts too on this, um, people that see the legal geeks at a panel, you know, they, their impression may be that pe people just show up and, you know, the, the panelists just kind of show up and just wing it. Um, that's not really how it is at a trial, is it? No, it really isn't. I mean, I, I tried cases for 30 years before I went on the bench and now I preside over trials well not now but back when we were still doing jury trials and the amount of preparation from all of the parties is is staggering for every perhaps day that you spend in court you've spent two or three days prepping for that one day and by prepping it means you have to understand that you have to know what everybody is going to say or at least think you know what they're going to say before they ever hit the stand and that's if it's a big case involving multiple witnesses and many exhibits you have to keep track of you have to know that case so that when you're, I mean, a lot of people, I think, have this misconception that you can, that lawyers will write down all their questions and they'll just read it and get the answers. And that's not how it goes at all. You have to direct where you're going. You kind of have to frame your narrative with your questions and you have to know what's going to happen because if you get, and you have to be able to think on your feet because if somebody answers or goes in a path you never saw coming, you have to be able to regroup and immediately on your feet and bring the narrative back to what you believe the case is all about. And that is, that involves so much work, so much preparation. The best lawyers are maybe not the smartest ones, but certainly the most prepared ones. Yeah. So there was a lot of preparation that went into this one, wasn't there, Josh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's, yeah, there was a lot of work. Let's just leave it at that. There was a lot of work and it was a lot of fun. It was a one hour panel, one hour trial. Safe to say more than one hour went into prepping it though, right? Yeah, you just don't cowboy up and do these. And it was 50 minutes. So, you know, we like, we had to figure out the timeline for like how much people could do for opening, direct, cross and closing, and then build and buffer uh, as well. Cause you can't, plan for the full 50, uh, you have to like plan for like say 40 to 45, because mm -hmm. in case something goes sideways, uh, we also want to be able to have questions and we want to be able to have the judge rule. So yeah, it's, there's a lot there that happens with this. So, uh, 
but I, I want to highlight people care. And that's the important thing from this. Yeah, the last Jedi had important concepts that got people thinking, uh, but doing it in a mock trial, one, people cared, how does this work? How do trials work? Burdens of proof, like what are the elements? Like, you know, we, we wrote up the criminal complaint, or Judge Sharina wrote up the criminal complaint for us and you know i i did the intro and like put up the different charges that would have been against poe from the uniform military code of justice that both tom sarper as a jag officer officer helped with and one of judge devin's friends who's a jag officer in the navy that she helped with so like there was a ton of prep work from a lot of well-educated people into this fictional movie for Comic-Con and it really paid off. And like that, you it's on you, our YouTube channel. And the last time I checked, it had like 10,000 views or 11,000 views. It, you know, and, and again, people from Lucasfilm had tweeted it out a couple times. And with one of them saying like, in no way canon, but highly enjoyable. And <laughs> stuff like, <laughs> it's like, God bless them, so much fun. So a couple of metrics, um, and this was the other uh, topic I, I wanted to touch, um, to develop a little more that you had touched on. So uh, the panel itself was well attended, uh, standing room only. Uh, the last time I checked, which was actually just uh, before we started here, there were 12,000 views on the YouTube video for this panel. And there are multiple videos of the panel too. Some are snippets, um, some with some commentary. The panel itself, even before it started, days before, received coverage on local KPBS uh, television with the arts reporter Beth Accomando, who has um, provided some great coverage for the legal geeks over the years. And then you already did mention some of the mentions or shout outs from people who actually do work on the Star Wars films, Pablo Hidalgo, Ryan Johnson. Um, there were some super fans in attendance with very large followings as well, some authors. Um, you know, were you anticipating that level of acceptance or, you know, that level of enthusiasm, you know, either of you for this, this type of, uh, this type of work that the group? No, uh, <laughs> no, I knew people were interested. I didn't know it would go that big. Uh, it was neat getting interviewed on the KPBS radio station. And then you did the TV interview because um, I, I looked at timing and went, oh, you know, like we it was like divide and conquer. I went and helped do prep and you did the interview and, and that worked well. And there was another interview with like screen, screen junkies, might've been screen junkies uh, as well. And like, that was just, it was fun. So yeah, there was, I knew there was interest. I didn't know if we would get any love from Lucas people at Lucasfilm, and we did. And so that was a very nice surprise. So I want to, um, you know, where we stand now, let, let's kind of bring it to the present right now. As we mentioned earlier, uh, Legal Geeks has presented consistently at Comic-Con. This will be the 12th panel now. And the group will hopefully present for the foreseeable future. But I wanted to sort of shift a little bit now and talk about 
Comic-Con, just from the fan perspective and the camaraderie that we have seen. You know, I mentioned earlier at the outset of the program, Comic-Con itself is extremely well attended. It has come to be a cultural sort of um, destination point. There really is something for everyone. And I think we've all seen that. There are great things to do if you are a cosplayer. There's a masquerade ball and there's just, you know, the the chance to be in the lobby or walk on the floor and have your picture taken and, you know, be another character for a little while. One can do that. Uh, there, are, if you're a comic professional, this is the place to be. This is almost like a, tr it's a trade show where you get to meet and network and maybe develop projects or, um, you know, get future work. If you are a toy collector or a gamer, um, a video gamer, a role-playing gamer, card gamer, you know, there are a lot of things for you to do there. If you only want to see, if your only interest is a movie like Twilight, um, that's there too. Or TV shows like Glee or shows that you don't even think would ordinarily be represented at Comic-Con, they still come. So this is a big tent, a very inclusive place, something that people travel from all over the world to attend. Now, Let's talk about that for a little bit here and about that camaraderie. Um, I'm gonna pose a couple of questions now and I ask each of you to answer. We'll go around and we'll, we'll talk about this. So Carol, when was your first San Diego Comic-Con? Oh, I'm aging myself. My first Comic-Con, if you're ready for this, was 1985. And I believe yeah. I have a pin from that. That has that date on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been married for over 30 years, and my husband and I went to the first Comic Con before we were married. So, yeah. Are you, are you a 35 year veteran by my count then? It's, I, not, not like for the last 15 years consecutive, but before that, it was, I, I had small children. So, right, <laughs> you know, right, it right, broke right. up around, around the 90s. So you've seen things change over the years, though, at Comic-Con, right? Oh, when I went to Comic-Con the first time, my husband saw an ad in the paper about this comic convention in San Diego that looked interesting. And we went on a Saturday, walked to the front of the door, bought a ticket, and walked in. And um, they had, it, it was tiny. They had uh, like a, one of the memorable things was a, a artist was painting a doing a, a painting right there on the spot of Wolverine and it was amazing and they were as he was painting it they were auctioning it off for charity for, for the San Diego Comic-Con and and at the time you know looking back on it now I wish I had bought it it was amazing and um, the first thing I ever bought at Comic-Con was a true art from the original Robotech show Whoa. I was a huge Robotech fan and they had the actual original art from that. So I've got like four storyboards. So I have that. <laughs> and that was like one of the first things I ever bought at Comic-Con. And that was back in, like I said, 1985. And it was just great. I got to meet the artists. Like, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty exciting. Oh my God. I did not know you were a Robotech fan. I'm holding my VF1S Skull Leader um, toy here. Oh, Skull Leader, wasn't that Roy? It was Roy and then it Rick. Was Roy Fulker, yeah. yeah. I'm a huge Robotech fan. Oh, I did not my. know you were 
I was huge. I mean, oh my God. That, <laughs> don't laugh. I used to watch it in law school. <laughs> it came out on TV when I was in law school and I was just fascinated by it. I just, I loved everything about it. They had the three different sagas, which I think were originally three different stories, but they kind of wove them together to make, they were. They yeah, were. a story here. And I loved it. So that, to me, it was just like, whoa, this is amazing. And then over the years, um, it used to be, well, I haven't gotten into a, a masquerade since the late 90s. Because <laughs> it used to be so much easier to get into everything. I think the longest I ever had to wait on a panel was for Twilight. And that was only because my daughter was like 10 at the time and wanted to go see it. And it wasn't worth it. <laughs> but the best panel, and I didn't have to wait as long as you would have thought. I actually got there in the morning and got in, was the year that they debuted Hugh Jackman was there in Wolverine and they had the whole panel from X-Men Days of Future Past. And it was really interesting. I actually got to ask a question and it ended up on YouTube. So it was, it was really exciting for me. That was, uh, that was really fun. So, I mean, I have so many memories from Comic-Con. I was there when they premiered Batman and people booed Michael Keaton in the audience. 1989. Yep. It was, it was, it was interesting. I, no, keep in mind, there hadn't been any major superhero movies since like Buck Rogers, which was awful. And so this was going to be a major motion picture done by a major studio. So everyone's very excited about it. But when they announced who the hero was going to be, I think people were kind of expecting someone more heroic, like probably somebody better looking in all honesty. <laughs> <laughs> he ended up being a wonderful Batman, but it was a, it was interesting to watch the crowd's reaction to it. So for, for folks who, um, have been going for the last five or 10 years and you think you've been going forever, just remember there were people going to Comic-Con who were there when it was announced that Michael Keaton was going to be playing Batman. So, you know, that's something to keep oh, yeah. on. <laughs> uh, Josh, how about you? Your first Comic-Con? 2015 was my first San Diego Comic-Con. My first con, ironically, was 1985 and it was Time-Con in San Jose. And so that was a Star Trek and Doctor Who convention. And so they, they were gearing up for uh, the voyage home and uh, Tom Baker was one of the guests of honor there. Then there was a really, really long hiatus uh, until you know, 2014 and, and going to Big Wow as an attendee and then Comic Fest as presenter, then Big Wow as a presenter and, and you know, the lead up to uh, going to San Diego. And your first time in 2015, was San Diego Comic-Con what you expected? More, less? I, it was a wonderful experience. And I went in very open-minded, uh, you, know, you know, sense of wonder. Uh, you know, granted, very focused on our panel. So that was a thing and wanting that to go well. There was again heck of a lot of prep, but you know we were still figuring things out, like you know how to read the schedule, how to plan. Um, there, like my strategies were always uh, like wrote off Hall H. Like that's like that was just crazy. Oh, you know, huge huge time investment, and I just wasn't into that, especially when you have thirty other panels happening an hour that are all interesting with professionals. And like that was where I rather spend my time. 
are checking out the exhibit hall. And for example, uh, Judge Graywall and I went to our panel room to scope it out you know, a couple hours before our panel. And there was a Jack Kirby panel. And it's like, so it's like, it's hot. We're like, oh, wow, this is a Jack Kirby panel. Let's watch this. And so again, sitting with a federal judge and they're going through the, the Kirby history. And then they revealed that they had had an interview with Kirby that had premiered once in 1981 or 82 on a local cable access channel. And they had found it, and this would be the first time anyone had seen it since it had aired on PBS, or excuse me, on uh, public access. And, you know, it's, it's a unique experience when you and a federal judge both turn and look at each other with mouths agape at that sort of announcement and you both have that five-year-old look on your face and like it was a fascinating interview to see Kirby and it was a wonderful panel because they had art and they talked about again things that he had worked on and themes that he had had in his work throughout the 50s pre-Marvel and that you can see then echoed in Fantastic Four and other uh, comics or a 3D comic that he had which was fascinating because again you would have needed 3d glasses and the villainous monster in it was a cyclops so he would not have seen things three-dimensionally and it's just it's like that's neat and like we stumbled onto that on accident and it was amazing to see so like there's always that sense of wonder in seeing like just great presenters with deep knowledge and in being relevant. I, I think, Josh, you've hit on something that makes Comic-Con so special, and that is that there is so much um, uncertainty in a good way. There's this real sense of possibility and magic there that every year people go, they always have some experience that they just didn't plan for, um, was unexpected, they bumped into someone or saw a panel, um, got pulled into some experience that they didn't even know existed, and it ended up just being wonderful, like one of the great memories. And it sounds like you had that right there on your first um, on your first trip, and that's quintessential Comic Con right there. Um, so I'll answer the question as well. Uh, my first Comic Con was 2003, and I have been going every year consecutively since that time. So I believe this year would have been 18 in a row. Uh, I'm not sure how to count this year because there is no Comic-Con and I will be participating in the online portion. So hopefully that keeps the streak alive. Um, and I will just say too that my experiences at Comic-Con have sort of been also in two parts. One has been before I had a family and kids and I was going all the time um, with friends, with my brother. Um, my wife would just drop me off at the convention center and say, okay, I'll see you later, honey. And, you know, pick me up at the end of the day. Yep. <laughs> I, I, it was, you know, kid in a candy store every time. Um, and it's like Christmas in July or your grown up Christmas, as I describe it, you get to be a kid again. And that's just wonderful. You know, it's, it's still like eight year old me wandering around with eyes wide open. And thankfully I have a little more money that I can actually afford to buy some of the things that I see now, which is, um, which is nice as well. And then the second phase would be when, um, when my kids were born and I've been taking the kids every year that they could go. And it's a very different experience going to Comic-Con with kids um, versus going just on your own or just with a group of your friends or your peers. 
going with kids is really, it changes a lot of things. And Comic-Con's a very family-friendly experience. There are many panels for children, cartoons, drawing panels, games, things like that. Uh, and we've, we've gotten to uh, just to have a lot of fun uh, and a lot of great experiences for the kids since that time. And I will say, you know, another way in which it changes is that the focus is on the kids now. You know, there are a lot of panels that I may want to go to if I were on my own, but I don't, you know, because I take my kids to the panels they want to see. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, seeing the joy and the wonderment on their faces, um, you know, my eldest son getting to meet a favorite author, ask her a question, have her sign his book. I mean, that's priceless. Just seeing that look on his face, that's, that's all I need, you know, and that's going to make me happy from now to eternity. Um, so it's, it's a different experience. Um, it, it's still terrific, um, but it's, you know, you, you, uh, you change with the times. Uh, so another question for all of you, and Carol, you touched on this a little bit, but what's the, Comic-Con is, anyone who's ever been knows Comic-Con's all about large crowds now, long lines, there's so much stuff. So naturally the convention has, it sells out every year and you often have to wait a long time to get into that panel you want, to buy that exclusive toy you want, to meet that celebrity perhaps. Uh, what is the longest that you have had to wait in line for something? And companion question, was it worth it? Carol, I think you touched on this, but um, what, what, what do you think? Oh, as I said before, the longest I waited in line, maybe it's because it was probably the hottest day of the year ever was for that twilight panel. It must've been a hundred degrees in the shade. And my <laughs> daughter was about 12 at the time and she wanted to see them. And we were in line forever. Well, how long <laughs> was, did you camp out overnight or something? No, we got there really, really, really early. And it just seemed like, and there was a, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean was the was was the uh, panel before it, so Johnny Depp was there, and it just seemed like everybody wanted to get in to see Johnny Depp. And Twilight was later in the afternoon, so of course people were going to stay in the hall all day long, and we didn't get in with the first batch, so we just had to wait until they opened up. You know, the trickle I call it the the it's like a water torture where you just wait while the water <laughs> trickles out. Three Lovely. people leave, three people can go in. You know, two people leave, two people can go in. <laughs> And it was just, and it was, it was just really not worth it. it there was no, nothing of substance in that panel. And it just was basically a, a, they could have put mannequins up there and it wouldn't have made much of a difference. Uh, so it's a bummer to hear that uh, the long wait did not pay off in that situation. But um, Well, you know, but I've had weights that were much more enjoyable like i said when i every time i've been in line for any kind of a marvel show a showing um i've seen hugh jackman there about three times and the lines have, have always been long but they seem like they go much faster because i was i was much i have been much more engaged with the audience with the with the crowds i make friends with all the people around me in every line that i've been in except that so that's part of the experience, right? When you're in line, you make what I call now line buddies because they're all there to see the same thing you do. You've got something in common, oh. something about which you're very passionate, you know? I was uh, in line to buy something. I remember, uh, Steve, because I ran into friends of yours and I, yeah. we didn't even know each other. We made that's friends right. in line and suddenly it was like, oh, you're a judge, you're a lawyer. It's like, of course, we all know each other, sure. Yeah, right. And 
I did. It was you. And I was yes. like, wait, yes, I do know him. <laughs> they, they, we actually do know each other. <laughs> we actually do. So it, it was just so funny. You know, I want to tell you, because I just remembered this, and it will make you laugh. Back in the 80s, when you went to Comic-Con, they sent out a little brochure, and it listed the name of everybody who was attending. Now, can you imagine doing that today? I mean, the, you couldn't imagine it. But you back mean, then... Everyone that bought a badge? You know, on, they, they'd send out like a little pamphlet and it had the names. You could see if, if you could look up somebody and see, are they coming again this year? Are they, but it was the people, they were in the, in the program. It was, yeah, no, seriously. I wish I, I wish I had kept one of those from back in the day. So the, these are the attendees, like your name would have been in there too? Everybody who was attending was in there. Wow. It was crazy. And like I had a friend who owned a, a comic book store and it would have like, a, you know, Kid Gary, you can find him there and you can just find everybody who, Wow. it, it was just crazy. <laughs> it was so strange. So Josh, longest that you've had to wait in line for something and was it worth it? So I try to be very careful with lines. And so I remember not getting into see George Takai. The... Like long waits to like uh, Hasbro or the Godzilla pop up that they had last year. The Godzilla one, I was able to you know get the exclusives that they had, so like that was cool. But you know, Bear McQuarrie had uh, a, a good wait, but I went to um, I saw the panel before that was actually interesting because uh, it was. Um, uh, was it Hot Toys? Uh, the, the the really nice. Why am I blanking on the, the name? Uh, but again, very nice action figures and just you know that are displayable. And I just went to the one that was you know the, the prior session and enjoyed that, so I didn't have to like have the horrible line because not everyone could get into to see that composer. Um, I think most of my waits have been on the exhibit hall, or to get into the exhibit hall because I try to be really savvy with the lines. And yeah, because I, um, part of it is the contrarian in me that, you know, it's just like there's some of the big, I, I won't go to anything in Ballroom 20 or Hall H because there's, you know, 29 other things to go see that hour. And i rather go do that because I'm, normally one of those guys in one of those rooms so I, I try to go support those or we have content because I not everything's about the big thing in my book right right mm -hmm. yeah good point so uh, but yeah my biggest weights were probably on the you know to get into the exhibit hall and I also learned last year with you know some of the line management outside was very confused for like before they opened the doors and so there are people milling about and, you know, giving conflicting information, which is bound to happen with that many people at a place that big. So like, I'm not blaming anyone for, for boots on the ground being confused. Fog of war, totally okay. But if you go get coffee at the Starbucks across the street and wait till 9.05 to go in, the doors are open and there's absolutely no hassle. So <laughs> I learned that one uh, last year last year and that's worked very well for you know that, i did that about day two and it's like wow i'm not in a herd i'm enjoying my coffee and my 
uh, you know, breakfast and then walk over with mocha in hand and, you know, go to a 10 a.m. panel or go hit the exhibit hall. So. Veteran con goer tip for uh, listeners there. You, you don't have to get in line and you don't have to be the first to get into the exhibit hall. If, if you're okay with not being the first to get in the exhibit hall, you can save yourself a lot of grief, get a cup of coffee, relax, and just stroll on in later on. Because, yeah, it's like people going back and forth. It's like, no, you need to go over to, like, Hall G. No, you need to go over to Hall A. It's like, which is it, guys? Like, we're, I know it's confusing. I'll, I'll wait. I'll just get off the tram and go across the street and have a mocha. See you in 10 minutes when it's not like this. <laughs> So that's, those are my battle strategies. So for me, um, longest I've had to wait and was it worth it? Unfortunately, I have a, a, a sad, you know, bad story. Um, well, there are two, two that jump to mind, but first is uh, I am an avid toy collector and I you know, love, love toys. Uh, every year go, getting to that Hasbro booth is a monumental feat, a journey for me. One year I decided that I was going to do my best to get in early and be one of the first on the floor. So on preview night, which starts at 6 p.m., I lined up at 4 a.m. that day. And I was there with my brother-in-law and my brother who later joined us. And the long story short is that we did wait in line for roughly 16 hours. We were among the first to get onto the convention floor. We got over to the Hasbro booth and we were at the very back of a very long line. And we were just dumbfounded as to how did that happen? It happened because, as Josh mentioned, you know, there were some miscommunications among security. And even though we were at the front of the line that was supposed to get into the convention center, security opened some of the side doors and other doors and let other people in before us. People who had come in maybe 10 hours after us were able to get on the floor before us. And we saw some of those same people far up in front of the line uh, in front of us. And that was very disheartening, you know, to, to have waited and kind of followed the rules and been at the back of the line. And ultimately, we did not get in to the Hasbro booth on that first night. So that, that was a sad experience. Um, but I'll contrast that with, uh, and this was last year, um, Carol, who is a line veteran. Carol and I were in line for the, uh, for the dreaded or, you know, the mythical hall h uh, and you got to camp out overnight for that and carol and i were doing it and at some point during the night uh and this was poor planning on my part i realized that my parking garage was going to close and i wasn't going to be able to get my car out and that was going to be a problem for how am i going to get home and also how am i going to um, get the kids um, to the convention center the next day so around it might have been midnight or one or two. Yeah, I, had to call it. I had to say, you know, I got to go. I got to get my car out before they locked that garage. And I had to leave. And it broke my heart because uh, I was in line for the Star Trek panel for the Picard um, series. Uh, Patrick Stewart himself was there, you know, just a hero of mine. Um, uh, so I missed it. Ironically, I came back early the next morning with the family and ran into a few people from our group that had been in line. And, you know, uh, there's a bond that develops uh, among fans who are in line and have that level of commitment. 
and you know we gave each other hugs and we're like hey how's it going oh you made it you got the wristband you're getting in and that was great and they were saying you know you, you should be here with us and it's like you know i i can't like we we got to go to spongebob now or something like that you know so yeah so it was um it was disappointing um but it was still it was still a con experience where i got to share the love with other fans and carol um bless you sent me some updates from the hall h floor and even got me um got me a, a hat for black widow and that um that really just meant the world you know um, it's not so much about what you get i think it's about who you experience it with and you know the experiences that you share um moving on coolest item acquired at comic-con carol oh uh that's a good um well, I've gotten some great artwork, like I said. You know, I've got some original Robotech art. I've got some original, I've got an original Revenge, Star Wars Revenge of the Jedi poster, uh, which I'm looking at right now. And, and I just, a couple of years ago, uh, they brought out the Luke Skywalker in his land speeder. And I, I love that. I got one of those. And, uh, you know, those are, I think those are the things that I like the most. And I, just, I know the land speeder wasn't a, a big, you know, a, an important piece, but it's a piece I like, so <laughs> it's like important it? to me. Yeah, that's all that matters. You know, who cares what it's worth on the market it, if, if you like it and you got it at Comic-Con? There you go, right? That's what it is. Coolest item acquired at Comic-Con, Josh? Well, that's super complicated. Uh, I frequently get lots of t-shirts there, so there's that. I have some artwork up in my office that's like kids playing in cardboard replicas of Star Wars uh, ships that I'm very fond of that's on the wall because that's nice background. Uh, this was actually something that Carol was able to pick up for me, but it's the uh, Han Solo Empire Strikes Back, you know, in the, uh, you know, outside the Falcon. Uh, you know, Rhinox. Yeah. yeah, you know, shoot, you know, cleaning off the Rhinox. And like, so that's cool. So that's in a place of honor. Um, so like those are, or, or the GI Joe Jeep you gave me is on top of my toy uh, <laughs> cabinet that's going to migrate to the office. So yeah, there's, it's tough to say one. Uh, it's more about the experiences. Um, so yeah, that's again, tough question. Um, and, and so that, that hits on, I think, a, a really strong theme here. Um, you know, you're, you're both identifying some things that were not necessarily purchased by you, but were oftentimes given to you by others. And, you know, that, that's really special. You know, I, I had trouble with this one as well, because um, I've gotten so many things over the years at Comic-Con. But one of the most special things to me, and I'm looking at right now, is a cool Mondo poster of the 1986 Transformers animated movie. This was an item that I saw and I thought, this looks great, but I cannot invest the time required to get in line for it because I have to prep for our panels and I have to take the kids here and there. And, well, it turns out that one of my good friends um, got in that line and got the poster for me and surprised me with it at, at the conclusion of Comic-Con. You know, we, we had bought stuff for each other and we had been in the lines early in the morning for Lego. And he said, look what I got you. And it just blew me away. And I am forever going to treasure that and not just the poster, but also, you know, what it represents, the camaraderie and the kindness mm -hmm. of someone to do that for you. 
Um, I'll just throw in a supplemental answer here uh, on coolest items I've acquired and just say also that my kids are huge Lego fans. And last year they were able to brave the very early lines to try to get some Lego minifigures. And they got lucky and they got them. And the look on their face of pure joy is again, something that I'll, I'll always treasure. So that, that was really special. Um, two more questions here. I know we can talk forever about this, but I also don't want the podcast to go on forever. Um, favorite panel or presentation at Comic-Con, not counting legal geeks, of course. Uh, Carol. Oh, that would have been the one that I alluded to earlier where I actually got to ask a question of the panelists and actually got to ask a question of uh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I have, as I said, been an attorney for years. I've been a judge. People think that I'm very articulate. And I will say, and I had a very articulate question prepared that I'd run past the moderators and they were all like, thumbs up, very good. And I walked up there and I basically babbled like an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and, and... as I said, it ended up on YouTube so that people can look me up and say, well, there's Judge Nahida babbling like an idiot. <laughs> can you, can you uh, satisfy was, our curiosity? Like, what was the question? <laughs> or can we look it up? It now because it was okay. so bad. We'll look it up. If you're curious, look it up on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. But it was, it was T. Hugh Jackman and he was very gracious while I was babbling like an idiot. And, uh, <laughs> It's just one of those things where I just totally turned into a total fangirl. That was that. It was over. And that's that's wonderful. No matter how high we get in our professions, what title we have, you know, how far along in life, you know, we can still be that kid that's just wide-eyed, like wow, you know, that that's Comic Con again. Um, favorite panel or presentation at Comic Con, Josh? Not counting our not counting legal geeks. Uh, I am. Uh, humble and you have humility. So there's, there was one during the Star Wars Day presentations, they had one of the guys who was on the marketing team for Empire Strikes Back. And he'd also done marketing for the original Star Wars. So his presentation was the media campaign they had for Empire. And it included the uh, 900 numbers people could call to hear C-3PO like give advice and like the different TV ads that they did. Their uh, behind the scenes photos that were very impressive. And, and that was cool. And heavily coupled with this was also a, um, like one of the Hasbro panels that was right before had like the original uh, TV ads from the like 70s and 80s and like that was just like this beautiful uh you know just very reminiscent you know very nostalgic borderline gut punch just because it was so beautiful to to see that again and see the people who were heavily inspired by that film and those toys had a career uh associated with it so i do think of those two because they were they were back to back and there was a high nostalgia factor with them because they really knew how to, you know, like hit people's heartstrings. And it was also just neat to see like, wow, that's all the work you did? Cool. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, just nicely talking about it. 
And it's funny you say that about The Empire Strikes Back as um, we sit here recording. Um, Carol has an Empire Strikes Back poster on her wall. I'm wearing an Empire Strikes Back uh, t-shirt. Um, and I'll note that you, Josh, are wearing a very cool I Have Spoken t-shirt. So um, there's a lot of good stuff there. And I'll answer this question quickly. Favorite panel or presentation at Comic-Con, not counting legal geeks. Uh, you know, I'm thinking more of just recent times. And there, we had a good experience at the Cartoon Network panel, uh, We Bear Bears, where my youngest son um, at the time got to ask a question. And I wasn't sure if he'd had, if he would have the poise. He was four years old. Uh, but he got up and he asked a question. And the creators um, all were so kind to him. And they had a couple pieces of art that they had drawn specifically for the show. And they gave him one. Uh, and he and that piece of art is hanging on his wall today and he still treasures it. And so that was wonderful to see. Um, similar story, either a year or two later, uh, promoting the Lego Ninjago movie. Um, my youngest son came dressed up in a Lego costume, um, one that we made as a Lego minifigure. Uh, I'll note that uh, it was my, my sister-in-law had recommended, hey, maybe you guys should bring that costume because maybe he'll get to ask a question. And I thought, oh, that costume's such a pain to carry around, it's so big. But we did it. He got up there, he asked a question and was called up and um, got to take a picture you know, with some of the actors. And that was really special too. Funny thing was, uh, we, of course, the adults are thinking, this is amazing. And then we asked him, do you realize what just happened? And he just shrugged and said, uh, someone asked to take a picture with me. And he just kind of walked off. So, <laughs> you know, little kids, it's, it's just wonderful to see um, how they perceive things. Last question here. Uh, Comic-Con, we've been talking all throughout about how special Comic-Con is, what makes it great. Uh, a lot of it is the camaraderie, the shared love for things all things geekdom, nerddom, Star Wars, Star Trek, you know, fantasy, sci-fi. Uh, and I have long believed that one of the things that makes Comic-Con so special is that it is the place where you will see tremendous acts of selflessness, kindness, things that you don't ordinarily see maybe outside of um, San Diego Comic-Con, but are not unusual to see at San Diego Comic-Con. And I'm talking about things where people after talking about how much they love something and hearing that someone else loves something, um, the one fan will just give something to the other and say, you know, you're a true fan, you, you would love this poster, or it's too bad you missed this thing, let me give you this. Uh, or I'll hold this place in line for you, or I'll go search for this thing for you. Uh, this is sort of following up on our, the three of us talking about some of our favorite items, and many of them are things that other people got for us. So this is something that I like to call sort of the Comic-Con spirit. Um, Carol, can you describe maybe a time where you got to experience that sort of Comic-Con spirit? It's, it's, it's interesting because when, and I, I'm racking my brain trying to remember, remember when, it was a couple of years ago, and people remember this who were there, but they had like a, a sort of a lottery to get autographs from at the time i think it was steven it, it, it was very steven universe diana gabaldon and a third person and you could get these lines to get them and i but you in the same line and whatever thing you pulled 
would be one of them. You, you didn't know which one you were going to get. And I had been in line and for my daughter because she wanted Steven Universe. She'd just come out a year or two earlier and she was very, very involved and very, to her, Steven Universe was her geekdom and she just loves it to this day. And I didn't get it. I pulled Diana Gabaldon, who I wasn't really that interested in her books, but there was an, a, another person next to me who was a young lady who just totally into Outlander and started telling me all about it. That she was in line for, she wanted it. So I gave her Diana Gabaldon. And I you know, didn't even think about it. I, didn't, I just gave it to her. I said, you know what, that's okay. I, that, I was looking for Steven Universe. An older gentleman came up to me and said, you know what, I don't know who that person is, this Universe person, but here, you can have this one. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was the most insane kind of, but it was all, and I was like, okay. <laughs> but wow. it was just, it was amazing. So it was just, just the way people are. When they Everybody, see, when people see you, yeah, they see you love something. They, they want to help you at, at, at Comic-Con. That's, that's awesome. Um, Josh, um, have you had a Comic-Con spirit type of experience? No, not like that. Not like that. I've, everything I've, I've experienced there has been super positive, but like nothing, over the top like that so just, just wonderful experiences overall <laughs> it's I, I think there are so many small little things that go on um you know either that we witness or that we are a part of um but you know i'll just throw something onto the fire and say that uh you know i think that over the years as the coordinator of legal geeks you have helped a lot of people get into comic-con mm -hmm as part of the group to help present uh, and part of uh, folks that are supporting. Uh, they, you've gotten in a lot of people who would not be able to otherwise get in because it is so hard to get badges. Um, and I think that's been a really amazing thing because I have seen just some of the joy. I will share with you one person who I think we were able to help get in one year is a relative of a colleague of mine. She lives, um, I'm not sure if it's in California, I forget now, but she lives in a place where she said she doesn't get to do a lot of this type of thing. She got to go to Comic-Con for the first time with a badge um, that we helped her get. She was wearing a costume that I, I don't really know what it is. She saw someone else wearing the costume and they did this little like tribal dance. Didn't, had never met before, we'll never see each other again, but just kind of high-fived and walked on. And then, um, the next year I was able to help her get a badge too. And she wrote me a thank you card, just talking about how much it meant for her to be able to go. And I think that uh, we were able to help her go the first time. So that's, um, you know, that, that's, that's very special. Um, the Comic-Con spirit, I'll share a story that's not really mine, um, but it's my brother's. And that is that he and I used to go to Comic-Con every year one year, my brother was in line to get an autograph from Jim Lee, the terrific artist who started, you know, was at Marvel and Image Comics um, in DC as well. And my, while in line, my brother struck up a conversation with a person um, nearby him, as one does when you're in line. Turns out this person uh, had traveled from Australia and loved Jim Lee and had brought several comics for Jim Lee to autograph. And so for a while, they just talked about how much they loved 
Jim Lee's artwork and how excited they were to meet him. And my brother was not expecting to meet him there. Um, it, this was one of those experiences where he'd been watering the floor and, oh my goodness, Jim Lee's signing, let me jump in line. So the, the other person asked my brother, what are you gonna have Jim Lee sign? And my brother said, oh, well, I, I wasn't really prepared for this. I'm just gonna have him sign my, uh, my Comic-Con program. And then the other person said to him, well, you know what? Um, here, why don't you take some of these special comics that I brought, have Jim Lee sign them and you keep them. And my brother was just stunned and said, well, wait a sec. I mean, these are yours, I, I can't accept this. And the guy said, you know, uh, keep them because it would just be a shame if you came all this way uh, across the country to go to Comic-Con to meet Jim Lee and you did not get to have him sign a comic. Um, I want you to have this sort of as another fan. And my brother still remembers that and he still talks about it and wishes that he had gotten that person's contact info so he could thank him because that's just one of those tremendous acts, you know, in the Comic-Con spirit that, um, that we see and that we continue to see and I hope we will always see. So we have been going um, for quite some time and there's just so much great material here, but uh, any closing thoughts, Josh or Carol? I'm very glad for the number of people that we've been able to get in uh, to the show. And that's important to me because like the years that we've had three panels, each speaker gets a guest. And you can buy up to five passes per uh, panel that you have. Like there was one year that we got a total of something like 30 people in you know, including all the speakers. And like, I'm very proud of that because otherwise people would not have had that experience. I also really like the fact of the family aspect of this. Judge Beckerman brought her son last year. He participated in a Fortnite competition and came in second. Oh. That's cool. Yeah, it's just uh, Judge Owens, you know, similar with being able to um, like, you know, he has daughters, like, you know, he, he texted, like, looking for advice. Uh, they wanted to see some panel in Ballroom 20. I don't remember if it was Stranger Things or, you know, something that they liked. And I gave it my two cents on, like, when to get there and in what, based on time of day. And his daughters were able to get in. I love that stuff. Uh, the, whether it's all of us as a group doing stuff together, having fun, or families having fun, uh, that's radically important. You know, I've got to say, we're multi-generational at this point. I, every year I go to Comic-Con with my husband, three of my four kids, and my two granddaughters. And they've been going for like, well, my, my youngest granddaughter is three and she's gone every year of her life, <laughs> including when her mother was pregnant with her. And uh, my other granddaughter is 11 and she has been going since she was about three or four. So wow. they, have, they have been going and these are my grandkids now. And I remember my youngest, uh, who's now an adult, it, my uh, daughter, she started, I started taking her, I started going back when she was about seven or eight and they've just all been going. It's a great, a grand tradition. Mm -hmm. well, um, thank you so much to Josh and Carol for joining us today, to Josh for sharing us this origin story of the Legal Geeks and, you know, makes us um, 
eager to learn what what lies in store next uh, for the group. And thank you for Carol's making me laugh here, but thank you to Carol for um, for contributing and being here today and um, for all of your terrific work. So to everyone who's listening, I hope that uh, we've helped to bring you some of the camaraderie that we may otherwise be missing from an in-person Comic-Con. And just remember that the, that camaraderie is still out there. That love, that passion, it's still out there now. It was there before and it will be here after you know, the current events and the pandemic are over. Um, so let's keep heart and we'll keep going. And to quote Josh, um, stay geeky, America. And thank you everyone.